Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, adaptive asset allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let adaptive asset allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Welcome, Jeremy Schwartz, to Resolve Riffs. It's been, it's crazy we haven't had you on already. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure seeing you being here. Um, good holiday weekend. Good to be here. Yeah, you bet. Um, I'd actually forgotten that um, that Monday's a holiday, so that is exciting to think about. Um, you're calling in from Florida, right? You've been there for a little while. You were down there with, with Jeremy, uh, Dr. Siegel, and you were, you were running some programs down there. So yeah, uh, Professor Sue and I, we did the CFA Society here in Miami a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, I had to go back back north, but we're you know we. Uh, I grew up down here and uh, we had the, the long weekend. We came down yesterday for, for this, for the kids take a few extra days and uh, see the family. Um, but it's, uh, it's always nice to get out of the, get out of the cold, come down to the beach. Yeah. Um, it is awfully nice in Florida this time of year to escape. Cause I think you get a lot of sort of slush and sleet and gray and just, just kind of miserable in, in mid February um, on the East coast. I know. Cause I live, a lot further north. Um, I grew up in Newfoundland. So, um, you know, pretty gritty island off the east coast of Canada. So I know all about um, rain, drizzle, fog, sleet, snow, and, and cold for eight or nine months of the year. Um, so it's, it's awfully nice to be here in the sun. Um, just for those who don't know, uh, Jeremy is global CIO for Wisdom Tree Funds. Jeremy also runs a podcast called Behind the Markets. Jeremy, how many years have you been running that? It's got to be like five or six, maybe more. I, I think the podcast officially, you know, we started off as a radio show and we're still a radio show on Sirius 132. Sirius partnered with Wharton um, to do it. The first three years, we had to be exclusive to Sirius, you know, their whole subscription model. Um, right. We get Howard Stern type ratings on Behind the Markets. but. <laughs> No, the um, you know they, they they were you had to be a subscription to be on, but then Wharton renegotiated last, and so in three years into it, we started being able to do our own podcast from it. So we did turn it to podcast. We go, we're live every Friday, so podcast usually comes out Friday evening, Saturday morning. I think we're now tending towards Saturday morning as our release. But yeah, it's been a fun fun thing. No no payments involved. Just uh, just trying to learn something new every week. Have good guests, and uh, it's been it's been a fun experience. Yeah, it's a, a, a passion project. And you got, you, you're lucky enough to have um, 
Professor Siegel on the show most episodes, right? He comes on and he gives some commentary on what he's watching in the markets. Um, maybe he's been talking to yeah. some people who knows the Fed, et cetera, and um, offers some guidance. What what has Professor Siegel been been focused on lately? Yeah, they you know Warren asked Siegel to host the show, so he did one episode. He had Bob Schiller after he won the Nobel Prize. He's like, uh, I quit. <laughs> you know, he wanted, he didn't, he's not he's not used to being like the host. Like he wants to come on, do his commentary most of the time. Uh, and, and luckily, you know, the, the Warren people knew of our relationship. We've been working together for 20 years and and uh, Wisdom Tree let me do it and didn't, didn't stop it. So it's all been good. Uh, yeah, we actually had a Fed president last week. We had our Philadelphia Fed president, Patrick Harker who was the Dean of Wharton. It's actually how I met Professor Siegel 20 years ago at Wharton, uh, small world enough that uh, the Dean of Wharton went to become the Philly Fed president. But the, you know, Harker came on, uh, you know, Siegel's been on, I'd say the dovish side um, really recently. I mean, he was very, very, he called for the inflation in May of 2020 before anybody was calling for inflation. He said there's gonna be much more inflation than we had uh, huge money supply. He's, he's in the Milton Friedman school of monetary, uh, you know, what drives the money supply is what drives inflation. And so the explosion of the money supply he, he knew was going to come out. And then when that started going in reverse, and now we have the money supply contracting, you don't have anyone at the Fed talking about a fact that it's actually going down. You haven't had to go down in 90 years. Like it, it contracted in the Great Depression. Otherwise, it hasn't. You want it growing 5% a year, it's, it's contracting. So that's a big concern in our book. Um, the Fed's not as concerned, but you know they, they've been sticking with this, this narrative that inflation is a real stubborn issue at the moment. And so Harker wanted to get above five. He didn't quite explain why five is a magic number. He sort of agreed with everything Siegel had to say um, on, on sort of the real-time housing stuff coming down, on money supply being somewhat of a concern. Uh, that you don't want to crush workers, that there's a structural deficit in workers. You can't do that through demand without putting too much demand. So like why take this anti-labor take and sort of try to crush the worker a bit? That's not a great take for the Fed, <laughs> yet they're still going at it. Yeah, right. We had your uh, colleague, Jeff Weninger, down here uh, a few weeks ago presenting to the CFA Society. And um, he was pretty staunchly um, bearish on the economy, led, I think, primarily by his view on what rates were going to do to housing. And yeah. um, so uh, head, for those who don't know, Jeff is head of equity strategy for, for Wisdom Tree. Um, and I have to say, man, does he put on a great show. He, um, besides being thoughtful and articulate and clearly very passionate about his work, the energy that goes into his presentations, it's like a, a thermonuclear explosion. It's crazy, man. I, like he must burn 1,500 calories in, in a 45-minute presentation. <laughs> I don't he's noticed that, but it's just incredible. And you know what? It's not even effort. That's just his natural style. I mean, it's sort of like Siegel, too. Like when you put Siegel on stage, he turns into a different human being. Like, you know, he's kind of soft, reserved. Then you put him on stage and he... And, and he loves teaching. And so he gets very energetic. And, Je you know, I, what's funny, I actually grew up with Jeff. Like we were, uh, we, we, his dad was our, you know, our, our, our probably elementary school basketball coach in Boca Hoops. So, <laughs> so it's nice that we reconnected at Wisdom Tree. But it's, um, he, he, his Twitter presence, he's definitely been the housing doom. Um, people called it doom porn on, for housing on, on what's gone around. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, like you say, like, is there something that could save us There's from the housing real doomsday scenario? Maybe it's there's just not that many houses available anywhere. I mean, I, I, the, what you what you hear anecdotally is that there is a not a lot of supply in many markets. And so prices aren't going down as much as you might think after they went up 40 percent. Uh, you know, you might think a 10 percent correction is natural with how high mortgage rates have gone. But uh, the supply, lack of supply is keeping things from really going down more but it, yeah he, he's definitely just been great to work with and if you haven't if you don't follow jeff winter on twitter you definitely should he's got he's got great charts all he does is think about charts all day long agree yeah no, he does post some great charts with great color and context um and great threads um and he hosts those great sessions what do you every uh 
every Wednesday night, Tuesday night, um, or most anyways, the, the Twitter, the live Twitter streams? We've been doing Twitter spaces um, often on Mondays, I think, is, is been our, 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 our regular cadence sometimes, mostly 5 p.m. Eastern on Mondays. It's sort of a nice way to start the week. You could, you could do Resolve Risk to close the week. You do Twitter spaces with Jeff to start the week on Mondays. Yeah, that, that sounds like two great bookends for the week. And um, yeah, we, you know, when he was here, we had a, a, a lunch with a, a group of about uh, 12 or 13 advisors. And toward the end, we went around and asked everybody their views on how this inflation growth dynamic was, was going to play out. And I think about two thirds of the people that were there were in Jeff's camp that, um, that this pretty draconian increase in rates um, by the Fed over the last nine, 12 months is going to, with a lag, crush growth, crush employment, and, and, and drag down housing, et cetera, and drag down earnings. And we're going we're gonna to have a pretty ferocious bear market um, and recession. Um, I was on the, 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 I guess, opposite end of that, thinking that um, because one of the things that is different about the current economic situation is that um, by virtue of, of them shutting the economy down in 2020, and they, you know, they fire hosed a huge amount of, of dollars into directly into people's checking accounts. And if you yes. examine the uh, size of the of aggregate checking deposits across the different income quintiles, uh, even at the lowest quintile, demand deposit in aggregate are currently at about 150% of where they were in 2019. So, you know, right across the income spectrum, Households are just, you know, they're still flush with with cash. They are picking up their spending on on credit cards. We certainly observe that. Um, But I think people are feeling more confident about sustaining spending because they've just got a lot more money sitting in savings accounts than they were ever used to before the um, the pandemic. So, you know, I think we got to contend with with this, um, you know, novel source of spending this time around that maybe makes some of the indicators that we were used to using to signal uh, recessionary conditions um, less effective. I mean, and so everybody refinanced their house at two and a half to 3%. So all the mortgages are very low. Uh, and now we're actually earning income. So, I mean, you have to think about where you keep your cash much more than you ever had to do. I mean, this is the first time I've ever gone to my checking account, like, on a regular basis and say, Oh, I got too much cash here. I got to move it over to treasury. So I got over 5%. And like, you know, your cash is costing you. And in other words, just saying that is your checking accounts now costing you 5% because they're not paying you. And, and the savings accounts are not paying you anywhere close to 5% either. So you got to be careful about how you manage all those savings uh, is one of the big things we're talking about extensively. But the, um, I, I mean, I, I, I that, point that you make, Adam, is exactly what we said was going to create the inflation of all that money in people's check accounts. Now, what's interesting is in aggregate, we somewhat think as an inflationary issue, we're getting close to that that money not having the inflation pressure it did. Um, and that's to say you had this 40% surge, okay, then you want it growing 5% a year. So your natural money supply should have been you know, from March 2020, we're, we're getting to almost where it should have grown 15%. Um, so you know, the inflation that's come out through the system, plus that 15%, you're not far from all of that money that's come in. So the above trend is what, you know, sort of the above money supply explosion above what the long-term trend is. You might only be a few percent away. We're trying to do some more precise calculations on it, but we think that big inflationary spike or impulse of the money in the system is behind but your point on hey there's still a lot of people who have a lot more cash than they otherwise would have and they still have a job they haven't actually been laid off from a job there is still this structural shift downwards Powell's talk about a structural shift downwards in workers so that should boost real wages the people are making more uh and they should and uh you know you can say hey maybe that is the case for we don't have a real recession you can say i think the equities they haven't given what's happened in rates in two weeks. You might, you know, given that I, I was describing most of the move 
certainly what tech leading the way, you know, the rebound of the, the growth area of the market in the, in the first four weeks of the year was, was coinciding with rates collapsing. You say, how much was rates collapsing? And now, well, oh, wait, maybe the economy is not going to be a recession. Maybe earnings are not going to collapse and equities are diverging a little bit from rates for the last two weeks, although this week it was a little bit more dicey. But, um, you know, they, the equities are holding in given the, the sharp rise in, in, in yields in the last 10 days. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I've been looking at the performance of equities, especially growth equities, relative to duration in the fixed income markets. And there's now a pretty large gap there where especially growth equities look really rich to rates. So, um, you know, something's going to happen, right? Either either rates are going to have to fall pretty dramatically or equities are going to have to com- uh, correct pretty substantially to catch down to where the rates markets would imply that they should probably be trading. So, um, you know, I know some traders that that I like to follow are uh, short twos and spoos, right? Which, um, you know, so continuing to call for, for higher rates for longer, a more persistent inflationary dynamic, more persistent growth and um, employment dynamic, um, and, you know, it's the, the path dependence here here is getting really interesting because we continue to see resilience in terms of animal spirits. In other words, investors continue to tighten credit spreads. They continue to drive equity, uh, equity higher, loosen financial conditions. Um, it just makes the Fed's job harder. Right. And if we start to see a continuation of what we're what we've begun to see the last few weeks, as maybe a, a resurgence in certain areas of the market from a pricing pressure standpoint, then that could really put the Fed in, in a box. And the Fed may have to get even more aggressive, both in terms of, uh, you know, reiterating its QT intentions, uh, talking the market higher in terms of rate expectations, terminal rates, um, and, you know, resetting equity investors' expectations for any kind of pivot in the near future. So the next few months, I think, is going to be really interesting for equity markets to see which gives first rates or um, or growthy type equity assets. Yeah, I, I, I'll say I, I've been a little surprised growth held in there as much in the last two weeks. I'm with you. I mean, now growth and one of Jeff's charts he probably showed at your CFA event was, I know he's been showing like the chart of the NASDAQ moving with the 10-year, basically, that most of the NASDAQ coincided with the 10-year. Yep. Now, the question is, in these large value growth regimes, so last year was a major year for value, and, and even yep. within value, a major year for sort of the shortest duration, high dividend type value stocks, even way more than traditional value metrics. It was, it was a particular year for dividends. Now, the in some of the rotation, you know, the is it they often in this growth of value is not just a one year trade, it often will be a longer term cycle. And I say this first move was all driven by repricing of, of rates, and so the discount rate changing almost all of equities, I'd say, last year wasn't an earnings look, it was just a rate driven repricing. Now, the question is for the longer part of the cycle is, well, can their earnings continue to dominate? Right, Part of the last decade where growth crushed value was, yeah, call it 2012, 2013, they were really cheap coming out of the financial crisis. And then they had massive outperformance on earnings and massive multiple expansion. Right Now, now multiples are starting to go the other way. There's probably more to go, in my view, that they're not quote unquote cheap. Um, but then will can their earnings continue to compound above the rest of the market like they were they were for a decade? Yeah. Uh, the history kind of questions that, you know, if they if they can. Yeah, no, I'm I am i am in the same camp. Um and and I'm certainly much more skeptical skeptical about um the prospects for growth to reassert its leadership in the next cycle the same way that it did in in the previous cycle. Not that we want to get positioned too aggressively on one side or the other, but to me that seems like the less likely scenario. Yep, I we are we tend to be, you know, at Wisdom Tree we have a whole cross section of the the market. So whether it's thematics or value, we started with roots and value, uh, and 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 believe that you know it, it's being high dividend oriented is going to be. A beneficial and I and I when I think about where are multiples today, you know, people worry about the S and P at 19, 20 times earnings. They worry that the 
you know, the 225 that people are were, were doing bottom-up estimates on the S&P is going to be 200 or below, like Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley's like 180, 185, something like that. Wow. And the you could buy, though, large parts of the U.S. market at 11 times earnings, whether it's high dividend stocks, small cap stocks, mid, mid-cap dividend payers. You're, you can buy, there's a lot of baskets at 11 to 12 times earnings. We have a number of them. Uh, and so it, you don't just have to be in the S&P at 20 times earnings, which is, you could say, you know, more risk um, from valuation perspective than an 11 times earnings basket. Um, I think that's going to be more defensive in, in a downturn. Yeah, I mean, it just seems prudent to, di- to diversify your duration risk within your equity portfolio, right? Um, so how do you do that? You just, you know, you shift some of your portfolio from cap weighted into even equal weight or, you know, perhaps even better um, value weighted or some kind of uh, quality value combination weighted. Jeff was saying when he was down here that 22 was the best year for wisdom tree flows uh, in a very long time. I guess that coincides with investors recognizing that they should probably have more exposure to lower duration, higher quality, lower um, yeah. EE companies. So it's interesting. It's It was true on both. It was definitely true at an aggregate level, at a firm level. It was true within equities where some of the things, you know, we launched the firm in 2006. So a number of our, our funds are coming up on 17-year anniversaries here in June. Uh, so we, we, we first launched back then. And and there was a number of those original, some of our, our largest funds had their best years for inflows. Two of them had their best years for inflows since we launched. So it was definitely a year people were recognizing it. Uh, and, you know, you had high dividend stocks that were very positive, mid-single-digit positive last year when the S&P was down in 20, right? So it was, it was a very good year for performance, good, very good year for flows. But what was really even gangbusters was we talked about the 5% you could earn in cash uh, and sort of having a floating rate instrument for treasuries was a huge asset. Uh, and, and so now our largest fund at the firm is a fixed income fund. And and uh, you know over over ten billion of flow last year, so it was a huge year for fixed income. I think some people were thinking, and even I was thinking, Siegel was thinking, hey, the Fed might start cutting rates sooner. Uh, it seems like that's getting pushed back, so that there's there's even more interest in that even uh, to start the year, and 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 you know perhaps just as a, a new way to think about that shortest duration securities, we're making with some waves in fixed income as well as equities. No, I agree, and so I mean, as you guys are having internal conversations. Um, where do you see the current opportunity set um, that maybe many investors are, are just not focused on? Well, Adam, I'm going to give a nod to you and what you focus on, because I think there's a lot of people having undercounted the role of alternatives and inflation hedges and um, you know what, what you guys have branded as return stacking opportunities, I think is a a real large opportunity. I mean, we, we call things capital efficient at, at our firm. We're doing some things of stock and bond combinations um, and, and then adding in diversifiers like commodities, managed futures that you guys all do a lot with. I think that is, to me, it's one of the big trends. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be done in that space. We, we'd launched some things with stock and bonds. We did stock and gold uh, as another combination uh, a few years ago. I think we're going to you know, we, we plan to do more in that spirit over time, but I think rethinking asset allocation is in forever the 60-40 worked. Uh, and you now need to, I think you saw with inflation some different, needing different characteristics. I, I, I tend to be, uh, I think commodities have a bigger role than people have given credit for and, and could do more with commodities. But I know you guys do a lot of research on the trend in commodities being more important than just a static long only commodities allocation, but you could argue even for long only, given that, you know, inflation was a key risk um, and that, that people are undercounting and you say, Hey, there can be more geopolitical risk that, that some, that commodities can be a useful diversifier to stocks and bonds. And uh, if there's some outlier risk. Yeah. I mean, obviously I agree, but just to focus in on, on the role of passive commodity exposure I tend to agree. You know, we, we write a lot about um, and deploy products that that uh, employ this global risk parity concept, right? But where we're trying to get equal exposure to equities that do well in 
um, typically like a growth environment, benign inflation environment, bonds that typically do well in a, in a lower growth environment or disappointing growth environment, disinflationary. So between stocks and bonds, there's really nothing that kind of works in an inflationary environment. Boy, did we see an example of how that plays out in 2022. Meanwhile, obviously, passive commodities are a very direct hedge against that kind of inflationary environment and act as a potential great third leg of the stool, right? Even if you don't want to have them in the same kind of weight as you as you would hold for your core equities and bonds, you know, even a 10 or 20% allocation to commodities can go a long way to providing balance in those kinds of inflationary environments. And as you say, stacking kind of a, a trend strategy on top of any of the sleeves your, of your portfolio to try and take advantage of that potential for capital efficiency um, can really offer a boost. So, um, you know, I was a huge fan. Maybe I, 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 mean, I was a huge fan when you guys launched your first uh, capital efficient ETF. Um, you know, between us, maybe we should sort of explain what these structures look like, right? So yep. without naming names, what might a, 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 a prototypical stock bond capital efficient portfolio look like? You know, and some of the academic research goes back to the legendary uh, Cliff Asnitz from from AQR. You know, he wrote a paper in in nineteen in the nineteen nineties. I'm going to forget the exact year, um, but you know, he, he the title of the paper was something like a levered sixty forty is is better than one hundred percent equities, something to that effect. That and what's interesting is when he did his study, you know, he had seventy years of data. He was his goal was to say what combination of a levered 60-40 would get you the same volatility as the 100% stock allocation. And and the leverage ratio he applied was 155%. And you know when we launched, we launched a 90-60 combination, which was almost exactly the paper yep. that Cliff wrote. Um, and, and funny enough, I hadn't seen the paper when we launched it. So I, I, I came in not having seen the paper, but it was a nice coincidence. How gracious of you to credit him anyways. <laughs> it, 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 was, uh, it, was, it was pretty funny timing there. But the so the 150% leverage, we ended up replicating his study afterwards, sort of reproducing his study. And there's all this stu- these commentaries about studies fail to replicate out of sample, but his paper worked better in the 30 years after he published it than in the 70 years he did the study. It actually worked way better. Stock the, the leverage 64 did way better from 97 onwards after he wrote it. Um, but you know the way it, this leverage 6040 works. Uh, in, in our case is you would basically take a basket um, and sort of the 90 60s one and a half times the 60 40 uh, and we get leverage through futures so you essentially buy a, a proxy of the s p 500 we we have our own type baskets um, and you know so you buy for a hundred dollars you put nine dollars in stocks and then you use the ten dollars of cash collateral to essentially fund a futures position. Um, you know, we, you could do it with, you know, I mentioned we did some things with gold. So you could basically buy gold futures on top of stocks, or you could do it with, you know, in, in this case of a, a treasury ladder, 60% allocated across futures. And so, you know, you're basically using futures and the, the leverage embedded in futures to do these two things on top of the Now, I think that combination in is a good combination for, taxable investors like you know there a lot of the ways things have been done in this way from i'd say some of the traditional 40 act um firms in in the u.s is they would they would buy bonds and then they would add a swap on top um you know very often there's a few different firms that do that um and then you know there's some nice tax advantages of using the equities as the underlying and then the bond futures the bond futures have a nice taxation element where you're not paying income on the bond, you're paying the 60-40 futures taxation. Um, and so there's some nice elements of doing that uh, as sort of the structure why we, what we did equity underlying and futures on top of it for a 60, for a levered 60-40 position. But, um, you know, I, I, that's and it, the, the idea there is now if you and, and if you put it, the, the, the magic of that, that one and a half times 60-40, you could put two thirds as much in that, still get a 60-40, and then you have a third freed up for whatever else you want to add, whatever you're, you know, if you just put it in cash and you actually earn the cash rate, you're basically the same spot as a 60, 40. So the question is, can you outperform cash becomes your question. Um, so what can you do with that third to outperform cash? Um, you know, cause the cost of the future, essentially the leverage in future, the cost is the cash rate. 
And so, you know, any diversifier, like a managed future strategy that can outperform cash or that owns cash as the underlying and then does future trading around it, you know, managed futures are in some ways the ideal complement because you're owning cash and you're, you're adding these the diversifiers that are trying to outperform cash. Um, but you could do anything that you could say, I just want the same exposure and have the, ca- the cash option value. I just want to be able to spend more. Um, that's another thing you do. But anything that, that does that is, is, is how to think about it. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's well explained. And yeah, I mean, it's just what's so great is you've got, if you've got a 90-60 portfolio, well, 90-60 times two-thirds is 60-40, right? So two-thirds of a 90-60 portfolio gets you a full investment in the 60-40 portfolio, and you've got one-third of the portfolio of real estate that's available for you to invest in diversifiers, like you said, right? So you could invest it in cash. Cash has no volatility. It's, it's effectively uncorrelated to the 60-40 portfolio, but it's not really providing any diversification. As you say, things like managed futures, um, which are structurally uncorrelated to uh, the 60-40 portfolio, not all the time, but on average, um, have volatility and therefore have an opportunity to actually generate higher returns. Um, But the total portfolio volatility is not nearly as large um, as you'd expect from adding stocks, bonds, and managed futures to the portfolio because the managed futures are uncorrelated to stocks and bonds portfolio. So, you know, you've got this nice uncorrelated or diversifier. And as a bonus, the managed futures typically are one of the very few uh, strategies or asset classes that, that tend to do very well during inflationary shocks. So, you know, you're adding a sleeve that may be able to help protect the portfolio, the stock bond portfolio, where the stocks and bonds are both vulnerable to that inflation shock, right? So, um, again, just a really good, a really good option. Um, in the equity-oriented world, um, what do you think investors are, are most overlooking? Well, you know, I, the question is: Are they going to return to growth so quickly? Um, I, you know, if you look within our themes that we have, we certainly have a basket. Our, our European team, in particular, started doing a lot with thematics. Uh, with the chat GBT news, you could imagine, you know, if you had to guess our, our top performing thematic this year, it's definitely the AI fund. You know, uh-huh. it, it, the AI strategy is, is tops with chat GBT going, going, going mainstream. So that that's getting priced in pretty well across the AI type of stocks. Um, you know, I think. You may not the, know this. It's it's tough to add the, ask the global CIO a, a a question, a specific question about the constituents of any of the underlying uh, products. But I'm just curious if you know what kind of companies are under the hood of, of an AI portfolio, right? Um, is it, do they tend to be completely novel companies that are, that are relatively new and are taking advantage of some of the huge leaps and advances in AI tech like ChatGPT? Or, I mean, you know, Microsoft just bought a, a slug of, of the AI tech. Does it mostly contain kind of Microsoft and Google who, let's face it, are responsible for a huge amount of the, of the research and, and own a, a large proportion of the IP in the space? Well, we do run our own indexes at Wisdom Tree. And so I, I have a little bit of knowledge of what's going on under the hood. And so, you know, th- this is one that we, you know, our, our team and our team in Europe had started before the team in the U.S. focusing on this space. But our our team has thought very much like what powers all of AI is semiconductors. So there's large position in semiconductors across uh of AI, so you need the chips to you know create the computing technology on it. There's a combination of the software providers and and you know classically AI is is software, and so there will be a bunch of different application companies across all all sorts of of software implications, and that's probably a quarter of the basket. There's hardware and things like you know for uh, you know. Te- Everybody talks about Tesla as one of these sort of the premier AI companies. And there's all sorts of, you say, hardware that goes into this. Um, there's obviously a set of robotics and industrial type companies. Uh, and so there's a combination of some of the established companies. Um, you would say some of the robotics companies would be part of it. But there's the software companies as well as the, the semis are the, the, the types of companies that would would go into this underlying. 
Gotcha. Good. So, so AI is a theme. What else do you think is, um, is exciting for investors to take a look at? Well, well that's certainly where things are going. I, I'd say they should still be thinking largely about value. I mean, I, I don't know that the value rotation is quite over. Um, and, and so I, I like, we've been talking U.S. small caps at 11 times earnings um, is, is a place to be. International value, eight to nine times earnings. If you think this value rotation is, is still early in the face, part of everybody's going for growth. That was a U.S. S&P 500 tech phenomena. But, but the international value places, I think, is, is another you know, really useful place. Uh, and people are thinking about the sort of China reopening as bullish for commodities or for China. And there has been a lot of money and moving to broad emerging markets. But, but even sort of European exporters are tied to the China reopening. And, and, and actually, one of our baskets of European exporters is, was up double digits and, and more than broader national because I think of the China connection that, that they're it's less of a, in, in our, some of our economists view, less of an, a massive infrastructure opening from China. But hey, China tourists are going to go around the world and start consuming again. And this is good for Japan. This is good for Europe. There's ways to play China reopening that are not just China tech, um, which was under a lot of pressure and, and, and certainly has seen the most interest in, in the reopening story. Yeah, Japan also seems like a really interesting opportunity. Um, wasn't so long ago that you know we were looking at Japanese small caps, even Japanese large caps, operating at a very significant discount to their historical PEs. Typically, Japanese equities trade at a premium on a PE basis to um, to other countries, but relative to their their history, um, they look relatively cheap. Is Japan an area of emphasis? Well, you must have been just talking to Jeff uh, because Jeff talks about this all the time about the, you know, the we talked about the Tina trade in the U.S., uh, the Tina being there's no alternative to stocks, um, you know, that that bond yields were so low that you had to be in stocks. Well, where is that adage still true? It's definitely still true in Japan. Um, and, and if you compared, you know, if you actually there's so all different ways you could measure the equity premium. Uh, my, you know, I think that the, our favorite way would be. The earnings yield versus the tips yield, you know, because stocks are real assets, earnings and dividends tend to grow with inflation over time. But if you did a more simple metric like the stocks versus the two-year yield or something like that, or the nominal yield, you could say, hey, uh, maybe the earnings yield is getting close to the two-year, you know, it's getting very close to the two-year yield in the U.S. Um, you know, Japan's yields are basically still zero. Um, you know, their 10-year is still being capped at 50 basis points shorter terms or even smaller yields. But you could look at, you know, with our dividend-weighted approach, your single-digit PEs, 9 to 10 PEs, so 10% earnings yields, with basically no bond yield to speak of. Right? That is a real equity premium. Uh, you know, and, and you know, they're, again, they're be, their currency devalued with the rates. I mean, basically, it was a play on the Fed versus their central bank keeping rates pegged at uh, – at, at they're capped at 25. They moved the cap to 50 on their 10-year bond deals. Their thoughts, maybe they'll change it more with the change in leadership coming up in a few months. But um, you know, the, the 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 there's still a huge equity premium, and I think they're still again tied to the Chinese reopening. So they've got some positive catalysts combined with this outlier earnings yield spread, a huge equity premium, and they're actually you know focusing on corporate governance for the first time. It's been a 30-year bear market in many ways um, from the peak of the bubble in, in 89 when they were like 100p. Now they're a tenth of the PE when you look at their value stocks. So it's it's still a place, Je Jeff and I are some of the few people who, who like to talk Japan and, uh, and think there's value there. Well, I mean, the, the leadership of corporate Japan is a completely new generation from what it was in the 90s at the height of the Koretsu model. They've dismantled a lot of that. Japanese industry is a lot more agile, a lot less interconnected now, and um, arguably, you know, positioned to be a lot more competitive, um, you know, going forward in both tech and just industrials, right? Um, they know they got to be competitive against China. They know they're not going to compete on the cost of labor. So they've invested a lot in innovation and productivity, and um, they're polished up and ready to dance, I think. Um, what about the currency? 
You know, it it moved around a lot uh, last year. I mean, it was it's definitely a function of the, it was a play on the Fed and the rates, right? So the the more the ten year in the U.S. there was a huge yield gap, and there's still. I mean, it's still we're not quite at four, and they're not quite at at fifty, but you know, call it three and a half percent on the ten year and and higher at the short end because they're basically negative, um, and so you know, got basically a 5% gap. There's a 5% carry, which is also saying, this is another one of those interesting things. I've been talking about hedging currency for Japan. Um, one of the few people in the US who, who talks about this at all. There's like two of us who talk about it. I'm like one of the two people who talk about it. And it's been true for since 2010, but there's a 5% carry trade to hedge the yen because of, you know, again, negative rates, positive rate. So the unhedged has to catch up by 5%. The yen has to go up by 5% to just catch up to the hedge. Um, and, you know, so ECB has been raising rates, but there's still a positive carry trade in the euro too. But, you know, I, there's a whole question of why when you go in Japan, Warren Buffett bought Japan a few years ago. I don't know if you remember when yeah. he bought these you remember that. Six, yeah. six Japanese trading companies. Did he go unhedged or hedged when he bought Japan? Presumably he went hedged. Why would you? Why would you bet on the yen? He thinks these stocks are cheap. Why would you say the yen is part of the story? So he, how did he hedge his position? He started, he floated a bunch of bonds. So he did even in a, in a, in a way where he basically bought these things, floated the yen bonds at zero and used all that capital to buy these things. We so basically bought it with not even putting up any capital essentially. And with a zero rate, what a deal for him. Um, these things have gone up a lot, but you know, by issuing the debt in yen, if the if the as the yen fell, his you know he has to pay back less, right? So his, he was fully hedged by issuing the bonds, and you know, but U.S. investors can take advantage of that too by just doing currency hedge. You don't have to. Your thesis could be the stocks are cheap. I don't need to make a bet on the currency. Um, I think more people should be hedged than they are. I think the dollar, the S&P has a weak dollar bias to it. Uh, I don't see enough people talk about this, Adam, that there's a more and more and more of our earnings are global multinational earnings. And, mm -hmm. and you know, you saw it through earnings reports. I mean, Mike Wilson said there was an 8% earnings headwind because of the 15% strong dollar at one point last year. Uh, now, okay, so some of that reverse, and maybe tech's going to get a little bit of an earnings bounce because of that. But why double down? Why, if you're going to go international, why double down if the S and P already has a weak dollar bias to it? You don't need further weak dollar bias. You just buy the stocks, and these these companies might become more competitive if you have a strong dollar. You don't need to rely on a weak euro, or you don't need to rely on a, on a weak dollar strong euro to be going overseas. Just say hey, the stocks are cheap be hedged. That's my thing. More people should be hedged than they are. Yeah. And I mean, you guys were one of the very first companies to come out with these hedged ETFs, right? Um, you know, you could, people can buy a hedged J Japanese equity ETF and um, super liquid and, and um, a really interesting diversifier for probably most portfolios. Do you guys do anything with India? I'm hearing a lot about India yeah. as a yeah, potential investment thesis. It, it's funny you say that because I had two calls on India this week, uh, people asking about India. So two, I think some of its are, flows are going back towards emerging markets. It's one of the things you've seen year to date, the last 90 days, people are going to emerging markets. Uh, people are saying maybe the U.S.'s long decade is not going to continue. And so EM is one of those places. But they're also a little skittish on is China the place to be? So like one of the discussion points was, should I have a strategic allocation to EM, but also, you know, diversify from, you know, China tends to be a third of most indexes. India's population could surpass China if it hasn't already, sort of young demographics. The thing I say about India is that people know it's one of the best growth stories, so they pay up for it. I mean, it's not a cheap market. Yeah, it's priced. Yeah. Mid-20s, you know, is, is P on MSCI India. You have the Adani story that's circulating, and a lot of those were expensive stocks. So they were close to 6% of the cap-weighted indexes to start the year. Interestingly, with our earnings index, they were less than a percent to start the year. So seven, eight times less because they were expensive stocks. So in an in like in a earnings-weighted approach, you know, the P's are only 12. So you actually get a like 10-point discount when you go to earnings weighting India. 
which I think if you're going to go to India, I, I would I, I like that a lot because it get the value sensitivity. You don't have to worry about it being more expensive. It basically brings you back underneath MSCI's P ratio. So it's very value centric. Um, it, it's also very broader markets in the sense of, you know, Capweight India with MSCI has about 100 companies. If you go to a broader universe like what we talk about, around 400 companies. So it's a a useful way to think about the broader opportunity set with a value sensitive idea. And for sure, I mean, now India's outperformed over the last five, six years. Um, this year, when EM is screaming, it's basically flat because I think some of this is Donny news. But well, definitely. beyond that, I think of a long-term demographic growth story, it could benefit from some of the moving away from China over time. It's one of the more local local economy stories within emerging markets. So, so I'm very bullish long-term on India's demographic profile. Then the question is, what are you paying for it? Uh, and so think about evaluation sensitive approach there. Do you think the Adani story is maybe also um, raising questions about the accounting reliability and the audit reliability in India? I know there's you know obviously been some skepticism or, or maybe caution about taking the accounting data for Chinese firms at face value, sort of same kind of reticence for India, do you think? It's interesting. Um, I mean, these are it's like the same stories you hear over and over throughout history. And it also goes to like why people gave me a hard time of why focus on dividends as a valuation metric? Well, you know, one thing you can't do, you can't restate your dividend. <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah. there's something about dividends at face value that, you know, cuts through all the accounting clutter. And, and actually, before we had all this SEC, you know, and, and it was a way that companies throughout the, call it the 19th century, showed that they had earnings, was they paid out the dividend. And I think in, in some emerging markets, the dividend that you pay a dividend is a important metric. Now, and, and, and when we first started our broad emerging market indexes, that is, you know, the dividend payment was a very important sign. For small cap emerging markets in particular, the last 15 years, non-payers, which is about 20% of the market, were down 2% a year when like high dividend EM stocks were positive 7 or 8% a year. So it's a big red flag in the EM markets if you can't pay the dividend. Now, India punitively taxes dividends, so they don't Ooh. pay that many of them. So this is one market where you can't, re at least, you know, when we went to that market, we, did, we wanted to be a broad approach and we went with an earnings concept. But, you know, I, I'd say, yes, there's some fears today. Dividends are one way to think about it, you know, not having to worry about that fear. But often people get overly hyped about a few specific issues. Like you had the same thing with China and, and luck and coffee, I want to say. It doesn't mean that all of the, the earnings are bad in China. There was this, you know, a few scenarios where, where, there's some questionable practices, so just like in the U.S., there'll be a number of, of questionable practices. Yeah. But in, in general, you know, the, the the firms auditing the books, there are sort of the same accounting firms that are auditing our books. So it's not all that different um, for right. China. And I think the standards and yes, there's different standards in every country, but but I don't have a massive fear about the accounting in India. So I want to dig into your your points about about dividends in emerging markets, because I think if I recall that. Um, investing based on dividend sorts has not been particularly um, robust in the U.S. over the long term, right? Um, there's just there's been no from a total return standpoint. There's been no advantage to dividend sorts the way that they typically are for, say, earning sorts or um, you know even even book to price sorts. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong on that. But then I what I want to focus on is is that also the case in foreign markets and emerging markets or, and especially emerging markets. So am I hearing you say that, that seeking out dividend paying companies or loading on dividends in emerging markets um, has historically meaningfully outperformed on a total yeah. return basis? And particularly in small caps, interestingly enough. Um, but the, as that's live. I mean, that's for, for the last 15 years that we've been live um, you, you've seen, uh, I, I, we could show if you go to, we have an attribution tool on our website where you could look at the cap weight index, our index, and see that the in the last 15 years, the non payers were negative, 
2% a year when the high dividend stocks were positive 7 8%. So very big outperformance across EM small caps in particular, but even EM large caps uh, in, in some ways as well. You know, the, the, the long term on dividends, you know, Siegel, this comes back to my research on with Siegel for some of his books. He did, you know, when we, I helped him with his book uh, called The Future for Investors, it came out in 2005. And he, you know, the, the final chapter of that book was called the DIV directives. He does believe in dividend outperformance. Uh, there, there was a, you know, we did a 50 year study of the S&P 500 that sorted the S&P into quintiles going back the, to the S&P's inception. And it did show out performance and it was, a, you know, call it 200 basis points for the top quintile. Now, after we published the book, the last 15 years, it's been a growth market, right? So the, right as we published the research, it, completely turns for you that growth starts to dominate for the next 15 years but it, it's all right so it's not as powerful the earning we also in that book we showed a pe sort and the dividend sort and yes the p sort was more powerful so the excess returns were higher the risk adjusted returns were very good for the top they tend to be lower beta stocks in the highest yielding quintiles now going into the 0809 you had low pe high dividends were all the, the the banks and the financial. So you, you, right. you right going to that, it wasn't as, you know, you, you got a headwind right away from the financial crisis after the book came out. Um, I remember the, the dividend aristocrats was full of, of companies like Bank of America, AIG, um, GE, right? All these companies yeah. that ended up absolutely getting massacred in 08 that had never cut their dividend, that had grown their dividend for like 50 years straight or something. Every value metric has its issues. Like, so price to book, you know, wh- why do they pick price to book in 93? Well, probably when they did their test, price to book looked like one of the best. And then now price to book has been like one of the worst for the last 15 years. Uh, e- even worse than dividends, you could say, over that period. And, you know, price to book has has declined meaningfully in terms of now companies no longer have assets on their balance sheets. They have a lot of intellectual intangible capital that's not sitting on the balance sheet. So the tech companies will never have a low price to book. Uh, and we'll capitalize R&D, which, which, you know, a few of the companies are, are now doing for, for sorts, which I think makes a lot of sense in the modern context. Yeah. Yeah. You need to do all sorts of adjustments to start adjusting that intangible capital. And, and, but even also in where book value, but also that, that makes these companies look more profitable. If you start capitalizing these R and D expenses, you're, it's less earnings hit today, more of a smoothed out earnings cycle over the next five years. So a lot of these companies that might be unprofitable tech become profitable tech, actually. Right. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting, interesting discussion there. Yeah, I, I always wonder about dividends because, you know, I, I think there's a, a strong dividend preference too. Like, uh, and that may be, that may die off with, with you know, as, as some of the older generations kind of move on. Um, but certainly among among many boomers and um, before them, the silent generation, there was definitely a strong dividend preference. And I wonder if maybe that there's a there might have been a discount because, you know, you would demand just a, a they would acquire a lower total return because of their preference for the for the dividends. Right. But, you know, maybe that's no longer the case or that's kind of dwindling now. Well, I think last year we'll we'll question whether or not it always gone away, because you now saw it was back to back to the basics of of twenty five percent outperformance over the S and P last year for yeah, yeah, right, high dividend yeah. U S stocks. But so some things you think go away and then they come back. But it you know it's it's um it's just another value metric, it, and and each one has their intricacies. I mean, think about. Now the S and P growth. I don't know if you saw this paper I did on the recent rebalance of S and P. But the S&P rebalanced and they added momentum to their growth index, okay? And so they have this three-factor model for growth and value that is that – and, and the intersection of their growth and value scores can impact their value score. So what became very negative momentum and such very negative growth was tech. And what became very positive momentum was energy. And so what got sold from their value index is the cheapest stocks. And what went into their value index is the most expensive stocks. Wow. So Amazon is now a value stock, according to S&P. <laughs> and Exxon and Chevron are growth. In, in particular, pure growth are now all the energy stocks and none of the tech stocks. I mean, that, that's a, a little overstatement. but Unintended it, consequences galore. 
right? So that there's all sorts of, and that's that's the premier S and P branded value growth cuts um, that can have all sorts of dividends. Now the high dividend stocks are like a, a I keep saying eleven to twelve PE. You only get one point discount across large, mid, and small cap S and P cuts because of that intricacy of momentum in their growth score impacting Incredible. everything. Incredible. Wow. I also wanted to pick your brain about the new um, Biden taxes on buybacks. Any thoughts on whether that's going to shift um, capital distribution choices? Um, if so, what do you what impact do you think it's going to have? Buybacks are interesting. They, they're this like political people love to hate on buybacks. The politicians like to pick on buybacks. Companies are buying back their own stock versus, you know, investing in CapEx or giving it to their employees. Um, and they, they get a reputation of companies only, that they're only doing it to offset their stock option issuance. That they And, and there is a truth that when buybacks really accelerated after stock options became popular, and, and you saw it when Microsoft paid its first dividend uh, in 2003, they canceled their stock option policy. They started doing restricted stock. So there's definitely a connection between stock options and buybacks. But I also think you know, there's this question, do companies waste their buybacks? What we find is that most of the buybacks are happening because companies think their stocks are cheap. Um, and, and some of the ways we're looking at buybacks today, I need to re refresh these numbers. But the last time I looked at it, like two thirds of the gross buybacks were what we would call value stocks, like very cheap stocks that you know, that, that they were, the companies were expressing a sign that these stocks were cheap. And we do have some strategies that focus on dividends and buybacks together. And we, we were already on it today, actually. And, and they, they have like a, again, like a 10 to 11 PE and aggregate an eight to 9% buyback yield. So they're, they're buying significant amounts of stock back. So not just small amounts, they're, they're, they're like eight to 10% on average. So some are way more than that, but the, in theory, um, I mean, we'd like people not to have any advantage on these taxes. I mean, there's a whole question of, you know, even dividends being disadvantaged versus, you know, you're, you're encouraged to finance with debt because interests are fully tax deductible versus yep. you do equity capital pay a dividend that's not tax deductible. And now, hey, we ha we've already taxed your earnings and we're going to further tax if you buy back your stock. Like the, the tax system has all sorts of in inconsistencies and yes, people are, prefer to defer capital gains. And so, you know, the buybacks is tax advantage versus a dividend, you could say. It's just a tax advantage dividend is one of the ways you could think of a buyback. So politicians say, hey, there's some money to grab. Let's let's tax the buyback a little bit more. Well, that's that, that's kind of a there's all sorts of things they could tax. Um and, and taxes do change incentives, whether or not that tax incentive is high enough to completely change the buybacks. If it's coming out of their pockets, it's different than if the shareholder pays the dividend tax. In, in, you know, in theory, there's a, a total amount of capital returned um, and it shouldn't matter, but companies will respond to incentives and, and uh, maybe they at the margin impacts their thoughts and, and encourages dividends more than buybacks. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder about, I know, you know, Medigliana and Miller, um, we know mechanically that buybacks are exactly the same as dividends um, from a cash distribution standpoint. I do wonder about how the different distributions are used. Um, like we were talking about earlier, right? There is this dividend preference among a whole segment of the population um, where, you know, they design portfolios to try to just live off their dividends and not touch their capital, right? And, um, there isn't the same kind of phenomenon for buybacks. So I do wonder, you know, if a much larger percentage of dividend cash flows or dividend distributions are withdrawn from the market, whereas the vast majority of buyback is, you know, redeployed in the market, then that would exert some kind of positive pressure at the margin for um, you know, just added demand to, to equity structurally over time. And um, if they disincentivize buybacks relative to dividends, more companies switch to dividends, fewer buybacks, whether that means that there'll be less 
buying pressure at the margin um, going forward, depending on how companies decide the trade-offs look like. That is interesting. I, I wonder how many people reinvest their dividends and how much take it and live off of it. That, it it's a very interesting question to get a study on is what is the automatic reinvestment versus um, people who take the cash and do other things with it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've always been curious about that because I know everyone says they're exactly the same. There's no concern. Stop it. But I do think that they're they're used in slightly different ways by different kinds of investors. And that, that actually might um, make a difference at the margin over time. Um, so what, what is Wisdom Tree focused on right now? Are you guys um, hoping to, to launch some, some new products? If so, what themes are you exploring or sorts or directions or new asset classes, alts, et cetera? Anything really interesting that you want to talk about? You know, we, I'd, say it's in, I'd say we're focused in many ways on the future of finance, um, even away from ETFs. So I, I think we have – our ETF lineup is very robust globally, um, and I think a lot of our innovation might actually come in what we're calling the token form. Um, we're actually launching – tokenized funds um, in, in, a, in a wallet called Wisdom Tree Prime. So right now there's a wait list, um, but the app should be rolling out in the coming months. Um, I've got on my phone playing around with it, and there's things like gold and cash, but basically tokenizing all sorts of things from real-world assets, treasuries, equities, um, gold, and, and other things in there. Uh, and so you know, I think that's and we talk about sort of savings, spending, investing. So it's a sort of new ecosystem in this digital wrapper. We're still obviously going to be, we believe in ETFs. I mean, 30 years from now, ETFs will be just like, you know, ETFs are mutual funds still actually much bigger than ETFs long at 30 years after the ETF. For us, ETFs will still be dominating, you know, far in the future. But but we do believe in this tokenized wrapper as, as innovating for us as, as a new thing. So... Yes, we're going to continue to innovate, probably do a handful of traditional ETFs this year in the U.S., but you'll see a lot from us in this token form um, and uh, you know, sort of exciting updates uh, coming from that front. Well, yeah, that, that is really interesting. I mean, that's a very new direction. So look forward to, to seeing how that plays out. Jeff was mentioning some of those new directions when we were uh, when we were chatting over dinner. So, yeah, very cool. Um, Jeremy. Where can people find you? I want to let you go. You're on vacation the last few days. Uh, where can people find you? Um, say more about your podcast. Um, yeah. What, what are you uh, What are you focused on personally right now? Well, thanks for the opportunity to be here on, on Resolve Riffs. We, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. Uh, you can see us on our Behind the Markets podcast every weekend, Saturdays. Uh, you'll see those podcasts dropping. Sirius XM, if you're in the car on... Fridays at noon. So that's uh, in the car on, on Sirius 132. Uh, you know, and, and at wisdomtree.com, our blog has a ton of great content. Uh, and, and you can get Siegel's comments every week. If you're not listening to the podcast, some of, some of that's overlapping, but you get Siegel's comments. And there's a broad team of people who uh, Jeff, has, as Adam's talked about, is, is producing there. But we've really daily and, and even more sometimes, depending on what's going on. But uh, you, you get a lot of great insights on the Wisdom Tree blog, and uh, and you know appreciate the opportunity to be here with all with all your listeners, Adam. Man, I just want to plug your blog too because I think it's some of the best practitioner oriented but academic quality research that you can get out there for free. You know, most of the time you got to pay for journal subscriptions, and a lot of the time it's convoluted and it's more academically oriented than practitioner focused. So, yeah, huge props to your team for publishing really relevant, timely, well-constructed research that people can actually use today to build better portfolios. So well done on that. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much. Enjoy the last few days of your, of your vacation in the South. And um, maybe we'll get together when we're in Philadelphia. I would lo love for you to come visit. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.
Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.